The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're going out to you on Halloween, the day that precedes the Day of the Dead. So we're setting aside our usual topics of politics and economics this week to discuss cultural practices like the Day of the Dead in Mexico and beyond. And we'll also have an exploration of Mayan spirituality. But first, mass graves and the disappearance of university students still has Mexico struggling with the issues of justice, the rule of law, and corruption. Gabriela Conchola is here with that story and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The president of Mexico met this week with the families of 43 missing university students. President Enrique Peña Nieto promised the families a renewed search plan, but the families of the missing students feel Peña Nieto has not done enough to find their missing relatives. Both the families and the president agreed to having a panel of parents and officials set up to help with the investigation. The 43 students went missing after a night of shootouts and protests in September. Investigators have found grave sites near where their students were last seen. The latest was found this week, yet there is no confirmation that any of the grave sites belong to the students. A father of one of the missing students, Meliton Ortega, reacted to the government's promises of action. Creemos que esos compromisos no son suficientes. We believe that these promises are not enough. They will not be enough until we get our sons back. So far, police have arrested a total of 56 suspects. Among them are several police officers, local officials, and gang members. However, the mayor of Iguala, his wife, and the town's police chief continue to elude arrest, despite nationwide orders for their arrests. The results are in. Two leftist presidents performed strongly in last week's elections. President Dilma Rousseff of the Workers' Party in Brazil won her second term against Social Democracy Party opponent Aécio Neves. This election was one of the toughest in recent years, with Rousseff winning with 51% of the vote, just a bit more than 2% better than Neves. While in Uruguay, former President Tabaré Vázquez took 49% of the vote. He led all candidates. He barely failed to get more than 50% of the vote, so the presidential race will go to a second round. Vasquez will face Luis Lacalle Pau of the National Party, Uruguay's traditional center-right party, in a runoff election late next month. Lacalle Pau won 32% of the vote in the first round. Five other presidential candidates competed in the first round of the election. United States officials attended a conference in Cuba to deal with Ebola this week. Two health officials from the United States joined other experts at a conference in Cuba to help put a halt on the Ebola epidemic. A leftist block of countries called ALBA, a group founded by Venezuela to counterweigh U.S. influence in Latin America, organized the conference. The U.S. maintains a trade embargo on Cuba, and the two countries do not have formal diplomatic relations. But... They have cooperated for years on issues of public health, such as Ebola. The United States has praised Cuba for its response to the crisis. Cuba has been the single biggest provider of medics to the Ebola crisis in West Africa. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Mexico!
Thanks, Gabriella. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Mexico City, Mexico. We had more listeners in Mexico City this week than any of the cities listening to us globally. Mil gracias. So that brings us back to Mexico and the custom of the Day of the Dead. As we heard in our program last year, that's a custom that goes beyond Mexico to various parts of Latin America. This year, we turn to Professor Roberto Barrios at the University of Southern Illinois Carbondale for his perspective on this custom. An anthropologist, Barrios has worked in indigenous parts of Mexico to study the custom. His work and photographs are the centerpiece of an exhibit at the Morris Library at his university, on display until mid-November. We spoke to Barrios in Carbondale via Skype. Day of the Dead is something that I had had curiosity about for a long time. Uh, I'm originally from Guatemala, Central America, um, and uh, All Saints Day is something that is practiced in Guatemala. Uh, My childhood memories involve taking a four-hour trip by car from Guatemala City to Quetzaltenango for my mother to leave flowers for her mother and always having a strong connection uh, to the place uh, where the remains of my grandmother uh, laid. But the, the practice of Day of the Dead in Mexico is, is much more elaborate. It, it, it's, it, it's something that, that the general public participates in, although the general public is participating in, in different ways in it. Uh, but it's an extremely rich, wealthy uh, practice that has strong pre-Columbian antecedents, but also has changed over the process of colonization in the last 500 years of Mexico. And it's also something that has uh, tremendous regional diversity, in, although almost down to household diversity. Each household practices it in a different way. But one of the things that I think is most important to know about Day of the Dead is about the relationship uh, between life and death uh, and the relationship to death that people develop over the course of life experiences with it. You mentioned the pre-Columbian origins of Day of the Dead and the changes since. What what do you think are the major changes from your studies? At the moment of of colonization, in, in many parts of Mesoamerica, uh, people's access to uh, the land and to those things that they needed to produce and to subsist, it was a predominantly agricultural commu- uh, agrarian society, uh, was often granted through membership in kin groups. Uh, so if you remember, for, for, for example, if you were uh, a Mexica person uh, who were the people of the ethnic group that, that formed a big part of the Aztec uh, confederation, uh, if you you were born into what's called a calpuyi, which would have been your uh, your uh, your your kinship group, as a member of a calpuyi, you, you had a right. You were born with a right to the means uh, that would guide one to well-being in that society. Uh, of course, that changed tremendously with the colonization. The colonization process uh, brings about a dramatic transformation of the relationships and the meaningful relationships between people and environment, where you have the dispossession of many indigenous communities from the lands uh, that were not necessarily privately owned. Um, uh, that were the means for their subsistence uh, in, in an agrarian society. Now, I don't mean to romanticize pre-Columbian peoples. Pre-Columbian peoples often made uh, tremendous mistakes in terms of their long-term sustainability. Uh, some city-states uh, did uh, experience conditions of collapse and of uh, extreme stressing of their environments. But the transformations that were brought about through the process of colonization were ones that began a process uh, towards the kinds of development that we're seeing today in Latin America that have produced tremendous conditions of environmental degradation, tremendous social inequities. Again, I don't mean to pretend that, that if pre-Columbian peoples or if the peoples who were present in the Americas prior to colonization had been left to their own devices, uh, that they would have lived in 
utopian and idyllic relationships, but we certainly see the beginning of certain trends that I think are intimately at the root of some of the most severe problems that we have in, in Latin America today, which include the marginalization of subsistence farmers, uh, again, tremendous conditions of environmental degradation, uh, the engagement of agriculture through the technologies produced by the Green Revolution that are predominantly techno-scientifically produced commodities like chemical pesticides and uh, genetically modified crops within the capitalist system of production. That are, that are ultimately creating tremendous inequities. When we look at the conditions that we consider to be the problems emanating from Latin America today, such as migration from Mexico to the United States, um, it's not because Mexico is a hideous country that people cannot live in, it's because of certain systems of transnational policies and exchange of, of, of technologies and policy uh, that, are, that are creating conditions that, are, that really make life untenable for, for many people, particularly in the rural countryside of Mexico. So, our policies, our practices, our technologies, and the ways in which they're being distributed that are linked to, to this history uh, of transformation of human-environment relationships have, have a big part, play a big role uh, in, in these broader processes of transnational migration that we're seeing today that we're so concerned about in the United States. We have certainly talked on this program in the past, and certainly this month, not far from Columbus Day, about these post-Columbian changes in what we've seen in Latin America, um, and many of those themes are themes that we have followed on this program in the past. Um, but I wonder if there are particular parts of this cultural experience that we see represented in those changes. So are there particular cultural practices that have changed specific to some of those themes that you mentioned? Day of the Dead uh, in the pre-Columbian period, at least in Santa Maria Tocatlan, uh, is practiced in relationship to the agricultural cycle. Uh, so there are intimate connections in, you know, in, in the ways that uh, the people who were present in the Americas prior to colonization engaged their environment. The environment was not a collection of objects devoid of meaning. Uh, the environment was engaged in something that was intimately linked to uh, cultural values surrounding ideas about the cosmos, also ideas about gender, ideas about society, and even ideas about kinship. Again, your relationship to the land was contingent on your relationship, your meaningful relationships to other human beings in the form of kinship. So the Day of the Dead occurs at an interesting moment in which it's a part of the agricultural cycle when har the harvest has occurred and the earth is entering its dormant stage. And, and therefore, on the one hand, it is a means of honoring deceased ancestors that, that, that are no longer present with us, but it's also a way of employing the earth and of protecting the crops. So they, they're, they're ritual practices, uh, the observance of, of uh, the dormant earth, uh, which is intimately related also to the live earth, uh, which is the, the, the earth that is green, that, that, that is fertile, that is seen over the course of uh, the agricultural period, especially be beginning with planting. So there, there is that intimate connection there to a particular type uh, of, of, of agrarian society and agricultural communities um, that, that is part of the human ecology that these people live within. The Day, Day of the Dead in Santa Maria Tocatlan, as it is practiced, and as it is practiced in many of the what are called, quote-unquote, more traditional communities of Mexico, uh, is, is a very intimate household activity. Every household, and it's, and it's an activity that uh, in, in the, the towns outside of Mexico City uh, takes over a week in terms of its preparation, the preparation of multiple foods that are going to be specific offerings made to, to specific uh, uh, ancestors or relatives uh, that have gone by. Um, and each household puts up an altar, and an altar is more of a process than an end product. Uh, the altar begins often... 
um, on October 31st with the, with the setting of an altar there specifically for the children of a family who have died in childhood. And it's an altar that is, uh, whose color, uh, uh, coordination, uh, co color coordination is mostly white uh, with, with, with yellow flowers that are meant to invite the souls of, of the dead children in, into the altar. Uh, and then eventually that, that, that altar morphs into the altar of the elders. Uh, and that altar has multiple offerings. And again, the, the, the process of offerings that, that takes place on, on the 1st of November is, is a process that, that involves multiple uh, layers of offering. Um, over the course of the day, the altar grows in terms of the foods, uh, candles, uh, holy water. Uh, it's in, and each offering involves the, usually the, the, the male head of household in, in the house speaking directly to each uh, deceased ancestor, uh, remembering them, uh, paying homage to them, and, and making specific offerings, saying things like, I remember you particularly enjoy this food, and, and you like this particular drink, so I make this to you. So it's a, it's a long day process that, that is at the culmination of an entire week of preparations, which is very different from my household in Guatemala. So as a male Ladino, uh, uh, we used to eat the ritual food of fiambre, uh, that, that was uh, kind of a, a cold type salad food, and we would make trips to uh, to, the, uh, to the cemeteries where my grandmother was buried, but we didn't have an altar like you see in, in Mexico, in many communities, in the household. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you think it's important for us to mention? Day of the Dead itself emerges as a very wonderful, very rich, very very visual, very colorful ritual that is intimately linked to human environment relationships, right? Day of the Dead would not exist had agriculture not been developed in Mexico over a period of perhaps over 8,000 years, beginning with the transitions that we see between the Pleistocene epoch and the Holocene epoch. You know, if you travel back in Mexico back in time, 14,000 years ago, you find woolly mammoths in the archaeological record. You don't find subsistence agricultural communities. You find people who were hunter-gatherers, foragers, who relied on the hunting of, of small animals as well as megafauna. And it was climate change that brought about the conditions, the possibility for agriculture to develop. And that was not human-induced climate change. Uh, but... It was that climate change, it was that relationship of humans to the environment that made it possible for agriculture to develop, that then made it possible for all of these complex societies in very complex cultures and very elaborate ritual practices to come about. And we are seeing now a, a situation in, in our world where because of human practices of development um, and, and you know, greenhouse emissions and everything else we are seeing, uh, certainly the manifestation of the beginning of a very severe process of climate change that may threaten the, 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 some of the, the fundamental ways in which we engage our environment that make civilization and the cultures that we have today possible. Thank you so much, Professor Roberto Barrios of Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ray. Barrios will give a lecture in Carbondale on the topic of the Day of the Dead, during the last day of these observances this weekend. Coming up, a discussion of Mayan spirituality. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse and our discussion this week of religious culture. We reached out to Professor David Friedel here in St. Louis 
Friedel is the co-author of Mayan Cosmos, one of the definitive texts on Mayan religion. We spoke to him in his office at Washington University. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Let me start with the present and work my way back a little bit. Uh, first of all, my experience of the Maya, which is now more than 40 years, is that the people I know are deeply spiritual people. That is to say, they spend a lot of time uh, observing and uh, appreciating the world in which they live, the world they create, uh, the world that uh, exists around them. Um, they pause in their daily lives, uh, and which are hard-working lives, to, uh, to see what's going on around them, to observe the sky, to observe the animal life in their vicinity, to uh, look at the plants that are in the vicinity. They are mindful of their world. And uh, for the most part, the Maya people I have known have been uh, villagers. Uh, they've been living close to uh, natural landscapes and landscapes that are organic, but that they have uh, shaped. So they plant trees, they plant uh, ornamentals, they plant medicinal plants around their houses. They plant some maize in their households for sweet corn. Um, they just really like to embrace uh, the living world in which they live. And the idea that human beings have the burden, the responsibility, to sustain and nurture the world is really quite pervasive in my religious and philosophical thought. So if you look at the stories of creation that Maya have from uh, the 18th century in Highland Guatemala, the uh, Quiche Book of Counsel, the Popol Vuh, uh, the books written by Yucatecan scribes who were trained in uh, alphabetic notation and then transliterated their hieroglyphic books into uh, Yucatec. Uh, you see in the creation stories that human beings have this um, moral obligation to sustain and nurture the world. If they don't, then bad things will happen to the world. And it's not surprising to discover that modern Maya living, for example, in the vicinity of the extraordinary cities that have sprouted up on the coast of Quintana Roo, Mexico, have deep misgivings about how uh, people are treating the world in which they are finding themselves. And they have thoughts and stories about how this world might end, how the people of the world who are now in power in their arrogance uh, will destroy each other with great uh, weapons until they're fighting with sticks and then they will come to the Maya to ask how they can find peace and the Maya will have to educate them into how to live properly in the world and not bring such catastrophe upon themselves. So spirituality is pervasive in the modern, in the modern Maya world. I know that it was pervasive in the past. In my generation, we have had the privilege of uh, seeing the decipherment of Maya hieroglyphic writing. And although 
The Maya principally wrote on bark cloth uh, books, books made out of bark cloth, uh, which are destroyed by time. And uh, we don't have that writing. We do have thousands upon thousands of inscriptions on painted Maya vases, on carved stone monuments, on precious jades, and other materials. And those texts reveal to us how the Maya thought about the world uh, more than a thousand years ago. The writing starts in earnest after 300 AD, and uh, they continue to write until uh, the Spanish successfully suppressed literacy among the Maya as a strategy for uh, uh, suppressing their efforts to revolt against uh, Spanish rule and against uh, conversion to Spanish Catholicism. So they continued to write uh, so long that in 1697 a Franciscan from Yucatan who had learned to read and write in Mayan hieroglyphic and of course spoke fluent Yucatec traveled to the heart of the last Maya state in the vicinity of Lake Petenitsa in Guatemala's uh, Paten department and there he tried to convert the king to Christianity using uh, hieroglyphically inscribed books that the king owned to tell him this is the turning of the 20-year cycle eight ahau and in eight ahau come the great and dramatic changes of the world as you know you must convert because the Spanish are going to conquer your land in the next year and if you are converted to Catholicism then you come under the protection of Holy Mother Church and you will not be mistreated. So the king, in fact, converted. But there was an uprising among those who wanted to remain pagan. They drove out Fray Avendano. He escaped barely with his life to Belize to write down this remarkable story. But there were people debating the future of the world, reading Maya hieroglyphically inscribed books, Spanish and Maya, in 1697. So it was a slow death for literacy, and it's a great rebirth for literacy, so that in the highlands of Guatemala and in the Yucatecan country of uh, the northern Maya lowlands, there are now students reading and writing in Mayan, as well as Spanish in high schools, and they are, some of them, learning the ancient hieroglyphic notation, and so they can actually read and write in that as well. But even the ones who cannot read and write in Mayan are taking names like Pakal or Lady Abel, and they are naming their children after great historical people of the classic Maya world. So they know about it, and they are enormously proud to know that there were great people in the past who have voice and who have names. I find it very interesting that the spirituality is also caught up in this story of conquest, colonialism, and also literacy, obviously. When you uh, combine uh, military and economic conquest and enslavement in many cases with religious conversion, the results are complex, to say the least. And in the case of the Maya, uh, 
we know now that the Maya had a story of creation given in the Quiche Popovu, which was given over to a uh, Spanish clergyman in Chichicastenango in the early 18th century, written in Quiche. Uh, that creation story talks about a great human form God. The human form God submits to sacrifice and he is resurrected by his twin sons and when his sons resurrect him they actually bring him back to life but they bring him back to life as a maize plant and as a beautiful young lord representative of maize. Maize for the Maya was and is the staple food. It is the food you must eat in order to be alive, in order to be human, every day. So from the corn uh, on the body of this resurrected maize god, uh, a great goddess uh, mixed her sweat with the maize dough and ground it and made food of it and that food was the flesh of the first human form human beings that acknowledged God. Earlier forms of human being had existed made out of mud like Adam in the story of creation from Genesis or other kinds of material like wood or other materials that they had failed. They had had arrogance and hubris or they just hadn't worked. But the human form gods made out of the flesh of maize worked. So here is a story about a god who sacrifices himself. And when he is resurrected, he takes the form of a cruciform tree, which is maize. And the cobs of maize on that tree are human beings. And everybody consumes the flesh of God. Everybody cultivates the flesh of God, so you sustain and nurture God through the 20 additional steps you have to take to cultivate maize after you plant it, if it's going to live in fruit. So the relationship with God is contractual and obvious. There's nothing complex about it. You know you have to sustain God so that God will sustain you. And there are other forms of God. But I want you to imagine, Rick, when Hernan Cortez gave a sermon on the summit of a pyramid on Cozumel Island when he arrived in the New World. And he held up a picture of a goddess and said, this is Holy Mother of God, Mary, and she is a great spiritual being. And everybody said, yep, we know all about that because we have an island here dedicated to the great goddess herself, Lady Rainbow, East Chelsea. And then he said, here's a cross shape. The cross represents the sacrifice that God has made so that you might live. And God rose again so that you might live. And this is the wafer that you eat, which is the flesh of God. And all those people around were saying, yeah, you just about have it right. You just about have the story right. You're, you're not very off in this story. So this is serendipitous. Obviously, many different religions existed in the New World, but the Maya religion, with this story at its core, 
is absolutely in place by 150 BC. We know this from beautiful murals that have been discovered that show this story of resurrection. So we know it exists. So for 15 to 16 centuries, minimally, the Maya had already believed what these Christian friars thought they were trying to teach them. And so they did not convert to Catholicism. They absorbed Catholicism into their existing religion. Thank you so much. Professor David Friedel of Washington University in St. Louis, the co-author of Maya Cosmos, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. We'll hear more from that interview with David Friedel later this winter. That concludes our program on religious customs. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.